Hi everyone and welcome back to the Drinks with Ali podcast where we're talking everything from red red wine to pina coladas. My name is Ali and today is Wednesday, April 21st. This is it guys. It's episode 50. I'm so excited to have made it this far. I'm also super grateful for all of you who are along for the ride and listening. I really can't thank you enough. And to those of you who have reached out and let me know that you're listening and enjoying the show, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. It really means the world to me that uh, people are actually listening to me while I'm chattering away on this podcast. And hopefully you guys are learning something a little bit uh, as we go along. Alrighty, so what shall we talk about for this 50th episode? Well, since it's getting to be both patio and rosé season, let's take a look at rosés. How we make them? Yes, there are different methods, a little history, and a general overview of both tasting notes and food pairings that we can enjoy with them. Rosés also happen to be one of my favorite styles of wine, after sparkling, of course. And I don't think they really have a season. I drink rosé year-round. People think I'm bananas, but I love rosés in the winter. It just brings me right back to summertime. They're really easy to pair with food, and I just love them. Oh, and before we begin, happy British National Tea Day to all of you out there who are like me and drink tea. Which, honestly, I would have guessed was every day in Britain, but I guess they need one specific day to celebrate the fact that they drink tea. <laughs> Alrighty, so let's jump on in to our rosé show. Alrighty, now there's no specific year or even decade uh, that rosé appears into existence. We do know there's some contradicting... Um, kind of history about it. Um, so it's said that in the 6th century, the Phocans brought vines to Massalia, which would be a bit odd, um, given that um, we know that vines were brought by the Greeks and the Romans to, the, to France and were planted extensively from the south all the way to the north, um, which would have been prior to the 6th century, because that's 6th century BC. Um, And Massalia is in what we would call modern-day Provence, which is basically right at the top of the Mediterranean Sea, like right when you get to France. Um, So a little bit of odd as far as dating. We do know that the monasteries of Provence made a lot of money back in the day, with their lighter pink wines. Um, Provence was kind of known for their pink wines. They didn't make a lot of whites or reds. They kind of blended them all together. So we do know there is that as well. Now, after Phylloxera decimates all the vineyards, like everywhere else, the Provinciens, Provinciens, um, decided that making these lighter styles of wines would be a really great idea. Um, It would be something they'd want to market to capture the U.S. dollar. Um, Because even remember, in the late 1800s, the U.S. market was really where 
all of the money was in wine. And then, of course, in the 1970s, as we talked about in our Valentine's Galentine's Day episode, um, Sutterholm um, and Bob Trinchero starts to release White Zinfandel, um, which was actually supposed to be a dry rosé and ended up becoming a very sweet class on its own. Um, the idea of rosés, though, at that point, kind of becomes more and more mainstream. Now, really until the early 2000s, though, the grouping of wines that are rosé, um, so we'll just group all the rosés from across the world together at that point, um, they were really kind of considered backburner wines, considered lesser than whites or rosés, whites or reds or sparklings. Um, these wines were wines that were thought to be drunk of by the unknowing wine consumer. And the person that just, you know, they were going to put ice cubes in their glass and they wanted something sweet and they wanted you know, something like a wine cooler and that's all they cared about. So um, very much not the same idea as the rosés that we see today. So, but back in the early 2000s, we see a bit of a renaissance for rosé, much like the cocktail renaissance um, that happened around the same time because taste started to change and more and more winemakers started to make a rosé and make a dry rosé or make their own style of rosé. And even now, it's pretty rare that a winery doesn't produce some kind of rosé. Honestly, there's probably a handful in each region, but most people have come to realize that the rosé market is a great market to be in and that they do want to capture that. It's a great bridge for a lot of wine drinkers from white into red. It's also a really great way to capture kind of a I hate to say it, a younger, more fun-loving audience. It's really stupid because I know a ton of people that drink rosé who wouldn't fall into that category. Now, how is rosé made? There are three methods to make rosé. There's maceration, saigné, and blended. They are all three different, but all produce tasty wines. And yes... All three methods can produce dry wines or sweet wines. They, all three methods, can produce high-quality wines and low-quality wines. With rosé, production method isn't a huge indicator of what the product is going to taste like or its quality uh, or anything else. It just simply is a way that they are made. So don't think, oh, a blended rosé is going to be lower quality than, say, a Seigne method rosé. Um, they really are just different styles. So, method number one, blending. Yep, you guessed it. In this method, a winemaker simply blends, blends, sorry guys, I'm tripping on my tongue this morning. They blend red wine and white wine together to get a pink wine. That's it. And it really doesn't take that much red to make it pink. Around 5% of the total volume of a tank can be enough to dye a batch pink. So it's not going to give a ton of the flavor. It's going to give some. 
Um, you're going to see these in kind of lighter style rosés. Um, and while not overly common with still rosé methods, um, though I personally have made a blended rosé while working at a winery, this method is the method of choice for producers of sparkling rosés. Uh, so Moet Rosé, so Moet Chandon Rosé is a classic example of this method. So they press their Chardonnay and they get a beautiful dry wine. They press some of the Pinot juice and they blend the two together, getting a nice pink. And then they ferment it, excuse me, and then they bottle it and re-ferment it in the bottle. Easy peasy. Methods two and three are similar in style, that they both allow juice or must, that's um, must is the technical term for the juice in a wine, to have contact with the grapes prior to fermentation. But they vary a little bit. With maceration method, the grapes are allowed to rest in the must, and then all of that must is used to create a batch of wine. By contrast, Sangier methods sees just some of the juice pulled off or blood from the tank before the rest of the juice is used to make red wine. Sangier, spelled S-A-I-G-N-E-E, is quite literally the French word for blood. So the grapes go in a tank, they're allowed to sit, and then they just pull a little bit of juice off to get the color. Um, The grapes in both cases can sit with the must for anywhere between 2 and 20 hours. So if that seems like a weird amount of time, just know that during harvest, or crush as it's lovingly unlovingly called, part of a winemaker's, the kind of harvest part of a winemaker's year is generally 18 to 24 hour days um, for anywhere between 4 and 12 weeks. So that time period, depending on when the grapes come in, it really doesn't matter because they're probably in the winery anyways, and they're probably there. Um, regions that make outstanding red wines, though, tend to use the Sangier method. So we're thinking Napa, Ontario, New Zealand, Australia, whereas maceration method is favored by winemakers in both Provence and the languedoc roussillon Both of these are very French wine regions. They are both in France. Um, Provence is at the very bottom of the French wine regions, and the Languedoc kind of comes down beside the Alps towards the south. They are both decidedly great rosé producers, and both have a lot of clout when it comes to French wine. Um, They are not considered second-rate wine regions at all. Um, They are definitely considered top-tier wine regions. Alrighty, so what does rosé taste like? Of course, each region and the base grapes will play a role in the flavor profile of these wines, of course. That would be like saying, you know, Cab Franc from every region is going to taste the exact same. It obviously doesn't. Oh, and what grapes, you ask, are base grapes for these wines? Any of them? Seriously, guys. I have had rosés made with both kinds of cab, so cab sav and cab franc, 
Pinot Noir, Syrah, Merlot, Dornfelder, Grenache, you name it, it can be made into a rosé. They really can run the full gamut of reds for those that can can be used for rosé. Now, personally, when I taste rosés, especially rosés made with either this maceration or the Sangue method, I always taste and smell goat's cheese, but like really good goat's cheese, not like stinky goat's cheese. I have no idea why, but it's just a distinctive flavor marker for me, and I always smell it. I don't know. You guys probably don't, and I don't know why that smell associates with rosé for me, but it does. Now, more classically... For rosés, we get things like strawberries, cherries, raspberries, plums, sometimes rhubarb, lemon or lime peels, rose petal and honeydew melon. That's the green melon that isn't watermelon. Um, I always get honeydew and cantaloupe backwards, so I always want to make sure that I tell people which one that is. Um, those flavors can occur as well. So they really, they really do vary but you're tending more towards things that are pink or red. Now, if we don't want to just drink our rosé while sitting on a patio in the sun, then some great wine pairings would be chicken, duck. Uh, Guys, if you've never had duck confit, please try it. Please try and find a farmer or a restaurant, farmer that has chickens or a restaurant that uh, makes duck confit. It is an amazing pairing for rosé, and it is delicious. Alrighty, lamb, vegetable skewers that are done on the barbecue, salmon, they all make excellent choices for pairing with rosé. Watch your spicing level, because a dry rosé and something that's quite spicy is going to be a little bit off balance, so there you'd want something that's a little bit off dry, a little bit of extra sweetness to it. But, uh definitely are great together. It is my go-to wine for doing cheese or charcuterie boards because it has such a kind of delicate flavor that's not super delicate. It can pair with a lot of different things. Um, And my personal favorite pairing for rosé is always pizza. I don't know why, but any toppings on pizza goes well with rosé. I think it has to do with the dry crispness of the rosé, cutting through the ooey-gooey kind of greasiness of pizza, of the cheese on the pizza. So guys, what's your favorite pairing? Let me know in the comments on the show's page over at episode 50. And with that, guys, we'll wrap up another episode of the show. I can't thank you enough for being along for this creative ride with me. Um, I'd started the podcast just as something kind of creative to do um, to get some words out of my head. And I am so grateful that you guys are here with me. And I promise this weekend I will figure out Lipson so we can get on more than just iTunes. Um, it appears that you have to individually upload each episode, but I'm not sure. So we'll see what happens. And don't forget to head over to my social p- media my social pages to see what we opened for today's episode celebration. Yep. We opened it yesterday. Um, like most content creators, I don't usually publish same day content, working a full-time job and helping my family homestead. 
doesn't leave a lot of quote unquote extra time for content creation. Uh, there's probably going to even be a blooper reel posted on TikTok and probably Instagram, maybe, I don't know. Um, so look out for that too. Kind of see some hilarity that happens when I try and do cool things and doesn't work. So if you would like to leave me a question, comment, or a show topic idea, you can reach me a couple different ways. You can head over to the website, like I said, drinkswithally.com, and you can leave a comment on this episode, which is number 50, or you can fill in the contact me form and I will get back to you. You can send me an email directly at drinkswithally at gmail.com, or you can meet up with me on social media. I am on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, Twitter, MeWe, Spotify, and Pinterest. So I am at Drinks with Ali on all of those platforms. And with that, guys, fill your glass with something tasty. Cheers, everyone. <laughs>